Good morning. Well, for those who may not know me, my name is Barry Pett, and I serve as a discipleship pastor here. And so today, it is my great honor to speak to you from the Word of God. So as you, uh, as you know by now, this third week of, of Advent um, is about joy. And when I was asked to speak to you guys today, as I, as I thought about joy, my, my first thoughts, of course, went to Luke 2. Um, this great phrase of, of verse 10, for I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And I got to be honest with you, my first inclination was, well, I can't use that just because of familiarity. I mean, probably most of us here have heard multiple messages from Luke 2. But I kept getting stuck on the phrase, great joy. Great joy. And I started thinking, what is great joy? What, is, what does it look like? Why, why do I feel like I, I don't know that many people who seem to really have great joy? How, how do we get it? Well, that and a variety of other questions is how you ended up with another message on, on, on Luke 2. So uh, I guess in simplest terms, good news of great joy just means that this news is so good, it's so good that the natural effect should be not just joy, but great joy. So I think before we, before we get started, the first question we probably should address is, is what, what is joy? What actually is joy? Webster defines joy as the source or cause of great pleasure or delight. It's the emotion evoked by well-being, success, good fortune, or the prospect of possessing what one desires. Okay, we can work with those. So the natural response to, to this good news proclaimed by the angels should be great delight because the source of man's greatest desire has arrived. Of course, I think the problem for most of us is that that. Great joy is maybe not the adjective that describes how most of us best feel this season, or I guess any season for that matter. I mean, ask people on the street, what, what emotion do you, do you most feel at Christmas? And you're probably likely to hear the words like stressed, frantic, anxious, overwhelmed, maybe even depressed. You hear these far more than you're likely to hear great joy. So the question I ask you today is, how great is your joy this Christmas season? I'll tell you that my aim, my message here, the aim of my message is to help you answer that question and then hopefully to encourage you through God's word to increase that joy. So before we jump in, let's pray together. Would you take a moment and, and, and pray for yourselves and those around you that, that they would indeed behold wondrous things from God's word today?
Pray for me that he would increase and I would decrease and that I would simply become a conduit for him to speak to you today. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. God, as we examine this familiar passage, would you guard us against a a been there, heard that mentality? Father, would you help us to, to honestly examine our hearts and the degree to which this wonderful, angelic proclamation produces great joy in us? And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So, as you've probably figured out by now, we're going to camp out on verses 10 and 11 of our text today. We will reference the rest of this passage for, for context, but I want us to fixate on the profound beauty of these two verses. And I think one could argue that Maybe the six most remarkable words in all of scripture are, a savior was born to you. A savior was born to you. This is the news that should result in ecstatic joy. This news is so great that God decided not just to tell us that it should result in joy. He showed this poor group of of unsuspecting shepherds what that joy looks like by revealing a multitude of the heavenly hosts who were praising God and repeating glory to God in the highest and on peace, on peace on earth, the people that he favors. But the thing is, sadly today, the words, a savior was born for you, doesn't spark or elicit much joy for many of us not to mention great joy. It's something we've heard all of our lives, but we never really hear. So to help remedy our our malady of joy uh, deficiency, I want us to explore four primary questions about this Savior that I think will help you assess your current joy factor. And my prayer is that maybe it just will bump it up a little bit. So the first question I want us to talk about is, what are we being saved from? I mean, the whole idea of of being saved is rooted in being in a dangerous or, or hopeless situation that you can't get yourself out of. And that someone other than you steps in and rescues you from your peril. This makes me think of a story that was in the the news just recently about a guy who who somehow managed to fall off a cruise ship in the middle of the night right before Thanksgiving. Did you guys hear about this one? (laughs) He said he doesn't remember what happened. He just woke up in the middle of the ocean with no cruise ship in sight. (laughs) I I was on a cruise earlier this year and I, I, I have no idea how that could happen. Um, but I think we would all agree that he was in a pretty desperate situation, right? I mean, any thoughts he might have had of, of, of swimming back to the boat were, were erased because he says he couldn't even see it. It was long gone. They were several hours from shore, so the thought of swimming back to New Orleans or, or any shore for that matter 
wasn't an option. Basically, he had no options. His only hope was that someone would quickly realize he had fallen overboard and begin to search for him and hopefully find him before he drowned or, or became shark food. Amazingly, as we read the story, he was able to tread water for 13 hours when he was finally spotted by an oil tanker and rescued by the Coast Guard. Now, I think it's safe to say that when he saw the Coast Guard helicopter hovering over him to pull him to safety, this man didn't just experience joy. He experienced great joy, right? So I think the first step in experiencing great joy, if we want to experience great joy, we have to be aware of our great danger. Anyone with an elementary knowledge of the Christian faith, if asked what Jesus came to save us from, could probably correctly say, hell. The problem is that for some reason, we're, we're prone to not view hell nearly as horrific as it is. I can remember having a conversation with a, a family member of mine once who wanted nothing to do with God. And this was because he had a brother who was born with <laughs> severe mental disabilities. And he judged God to be evil and cruel. I remember him saying once to me that he would rather party with his friends in hell rather than spend eternity with the God who allowed his brother to be born this way. Now, of course, that is a amazingly foolish and naive statement that I pray that he never has to experience. Because if the Bible is true, then hell is far from an endless keg party around a huge bonfire. But sadly, I think he, he learned this idea probably likely from the culture around us who's come to either dismiss the doctrine of hell altogether or to minimize it as maybe some, a somewhat uncomfortable place run by a little guy who looks a lot like the mascot for, for Torchy's Tacos. <laughs> and you might be thinking, why in the world are you talking about hell at Christmas? This is, this is Joy Week. <laughs> and the answer is because a Savior is born to us who came to rescue us before, from a peril that is beyond our comprehension. I think it's common to hear, I can't believe a loving God would allow anyone to spend eternity in a place of torment. But I would say, what if God knows exactly how horrific hell is and precisely because he is such a loving God that he embarked on the most remarkable rescue mission of all time at infinite cost to himself to save us from our greatest peril. But I think that leads to another hindrance to great joy. Because I think we tend to not only minimize hell, we also minimize the seriousness of our sin. We not only question God's goodness and love that, that he would send someone to hell, we question his justice because, quite frankly, we simply don't think we deserve it. 
I mean, it's not, it's not uncommon to imagine hell as, as getting a life sentence in prison with no chance of parole for the equivalent of driving 15 miles over the speed limit. Let's face it, most of us just don't think we're all that bad. I mean, maybe Hitler or the Unabomber, but, but not us. But if God is truly God, then he is not just perfectly loving, he's perfectly just. And that means that if the punishment for our sin is eternity in a place that scripture describes as a furnace of fire filled with weeping and gnashing of teeth and a place of eternal torment with fire and sulfur, then it is only because the punishment exactly fits the crime. God does not condemn us to hell for jaywalking. He rightly contemns us for capital treason against the holy God. And we all know that the consequences of a crime vary based on who the crime is committed against, right? Punch me in the face and you might get a citation. Punch President Biden in the face and you're going away for a very long time. Sin is rebellion against God. And scripture doesn't stutter that the wages of sin is death, both physical and eternal. And you see, when we rightly begin to see the seriousness of our crimes against God and the severity of the consequences, the thought of a savior who will save us naturally leads to great joy. Let's look at the second question. Next question I want us to consider that I think can affect the degree of our joy is, so how exactly great is our Savior? I mean, if I were to ask the question, who is our Savior? Probably every kid back in the children's area can likely answer this question as, Jesus. But just as we are prone to minimize the severity of our sin, and its consequences, I think we're also inclined to minimize the greatness of our Savior. You see, the exuberance of heavenly hosts, it wasn't just because of, of what humanity was being saved from, but who it was being saved by. Unto you is born this day a Savior, Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. Now, now this phrase can, can kind of roll off our tongue, kind of like it's his last name or a, or a nickname. But I assure you that wasn't the case with the angels. Christ and Lord are anything but common titles. Let's start with Christ or Messiah as the CSB uses. The Greek word here is Christos, which means anointed one. It's one appointed by God for a specific task or role. Now, to be clear, Jesus wasn't the first or only anointed one. We, th we see in scripture three categories of people who, who were anointed by God. Prophets, priests, and kings. And scripture shows that there, are, there were many prophets, priests, and kings throughout Jewish history to serve, that God used to serve and save his people. 
But you know what we don't read is a multitude of angels showing up to celebrate their arrival. And that's because Jesus wasn't just a Messiah. He was the Messiah. Capital M Messiah. So what set this Messiah apart? I think first, there's many but I think first thing we think to acknowledge is that, well, there were many prophets, priests, and kings throughout history. They typically never served in more than one role. In other words, prophets weren't priests, priests weren't kings, and kings weren't prophets. But Jesus is the Messiah because he not, he not only served in two, but all three roles. And each role he served in infinitely beyond the scope and the capacity of any of the, immortal, of the mortal anointed ones. So let's just take a minute. I want to look at these individually. Prophets. God anointed many prophets through the generation to speak on his behalf. Ezekiel, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, just to name a few. These guys were all anointed by God to speak on his behalf. They proclaim both the promises and the judgments of God. Many Jewish people in Jesus' time rightly acknowledged him as a prophet as well. In Matthew 21, we read, and the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. In Mark 6, we read this concerning Jesus' identity. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. But in Luke 6, we see that Jesus was not, he was indeed a prophet, but not just another prophet. Beginning in verse 16, we read, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, he then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. <laughs> Whoa. You see, Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He was the fulfillment of prophecy. He was what all other prophecy pointed to. But Jesus was also appointed as our priest, not just our prophet. The role of a priest was to serve as a, as a mediator between God and men. The priest's job was to offer sacrifices of, of unblemished animals on the temple, temple altar in order to atone for the, for, the, for the sins of people. We read in Hebrews 2, we read this about Jesus. It says, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God 
and that he might make atonement for sin. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute, I don't, I don't remember ever hearing about Jesus wearing elaborate robes and serving as a, as a high priest in the temple. Well, and that was because he didn't. And that's because the physical temple was just a temporary shadow of the true spiritual temple of which Jesus has always been and always will be the high priest. It's like, it's like having the model of a building versus the actual building. I mean, what's the purpose of the model? It's, it's just so you can kind of get a vision of what the actual building will look like once it's built. In Hebrews 10, we see this very image described. It says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, the other priests, they didn't know it at the time, but, but they weren't atoning for sins at all. They were just modeling what would happen when the true high priest came to take away the sins of the world. And then it gets better. In Hebrews 9, we learn maybe the most incredible thing that separated Jesus from every other high priest. We read this, it says, he did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. By his own blood. Jesus didn't just prepare and offer atonement sacrifices like the other high priest. He was both the priest and the sacrifice. He put himself on the altar and not for the, the momentary atonement of a few, but it says for the eternal atonement for many. This is the Savior the angels proclaimed. But we're not done. Because Jesus, it says, is also anointed as our king. Isaiah describes his kingship saying, he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. Suddenly, Queen Elizabeth's 70-year reign just doesn't sound quite as impressive, does it? You see, God anointed many men to, to be kings and to lead the nation of Israel. But you know what you never read about David or Solomon or any other anointed king? This. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse its writer called faithful and true, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. 
He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is our Savior King. How's your joy doing? Is it getting better? But you see, we're not done. Not by a long shot. Because Luke doesn't just say that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. That's not what it says, is it? It says, no, it's a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now that doesn't, this title doesn't usually grab our attention because we kind of put it all together, Christ the Lord, and like, okay, yeah, I don't know what that means, but it sounds important. But I assure you that it caught the shepherd's attention that night. You see, the word here, the, the word here for, for, for Lord is kurios, which is, syn- which is synonymous with Jehovah or Yahweh. In other words, God. On this night, God was born. That's the ultimate oxymoron. I mean, those things don't go together, right? God is eternal, not born. The, God, the concept of God taking on flesh is utterly heretical to our Muslim and Jewish friends. God would never demean himself so low as to become human. But you see, I think that, that they rightly understand the holiness and the greatness of God. It just seems that maybe they understand his love entirely. God demonstrates his love for us And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is unfathomable love. He loved us enough to leave heaven to take on human flesh in the form of a servant and humble himself to become obedient even to death on a cross. So when the angels announce the birth of a savior, they're not just talking about any savior. This Savior is our divine prophet, priest, and king. And Hebrews 25 says, therefore, therefore, meaning because he is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, and God, therefore, it says he is able to save forever, completely, perfectly, for eternity. One, One translation says, those who come to God through him. Now, going back to our first point for just a moment, don't miss that the greatness of this Savior also speaks to the seriousness of our sin problem. You see, if I I get into a fender bender and I call 911 for help, you know who I can be almost absolutely certain that they're not going to send out to me? SEAL Team 6. (laughs) Why? Why? Well, that would, right, I mean, that would, that would be a, a gross misuse of their skill and training. SEAL Team 6 is sent to the most, most dangerous and desperate rescue missions. 
And make no mistake, God did not leave heaven to save us from fender bender sins and consequences. Only the greatest perils require the greatest saviors. This is good news that should produce great joy. And we're only halfway done. Isn't that great news? <laughs> like, oh no, we're only halfway done. Question three, why did he save us? Why? If God is this amazing, why would a God this incredible go to such lengths to save wretched sinners like ourselves? And here again, we, we, we know the Sunday school answer because he loves us, which of course is absolutely true. But just in case your joy level hasn't quite reached great yet, let me take a moment to flesh out a dimension of that love that maybe, just maybe, you haven't fully considered. You see, we have discussed what the Savior has saved us from. But I think to fully appreciate the greatness of the angelic news, we also have to examine what he saved us for. See, we know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So God didn't just save us from hell, but he saved us so that, so that we could be eternally with him in heaven. But once again, I think the problem is that we often do the same thing to heaven that we've already discussed that we're prone to do with hell. And that is to view it as far less than it is. So just as we turn hell into a, 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 a bonfire party hosted by a little guy in red pajamas, I think heaven is, is sometimes is often portrayed as us, you know, sitting on a cloud surrounded by chubby little cherubs forever playing the harp. Now, I'll be honest with you, I have no desire to spend even five minutes practicing the harp on earth. So I sure don't want to do it for billions of years in heaven. No offense to any of our players here. Um, you know, but, but even if you ramp up heaven to a, a spectacular city with streets made of gold, which, which scripture does describe, I mean, I got to think even that would probably get mundane after a million years or so. For me, I think one of the most jaw-dropping statements in all of scripture is found in Hebrews 12, one and two. Listen to this. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What? I, 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 we gotta ask, what, what joy could he possibly be looking forward to enough to endure the horror of, of crucifixion? I mean, surely more than, than harps and clouds and cherubs and golden cities, right? And fortunately for us, we don't have to guess 
because Jesus told us exactly what he's looking forward to. And we find the answer in John 17, the the famous high priestly prayer chapter. This chapter records at least part of Jesus' prayer to his father the night before, the night of, immediately prior to being arrested and crucified. Moments before, this is, this is his prayer. And, so, and this, whole chair, this whole chapter is this beautiful prayer of Jesus expressing his love for his father and for, and for his followers. But the summit of this great chapter occurs in verse 24, where Jesus says this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundation. There it is. In his final prayer, moments before his crucifixion, he essentially says, Father, I know exactly what's about to happen to me. But I'm willing to go through it. I'm willing to go through with it because more than anything, I want those that you've given me, those who I love, I want them to be with me where I'm going because I can't wait to show them my glory which you have given me out of your love for me. Whoa. So the the million dollar question is, what what is this glory that he, he wants us to see so badly that he was willing to endure what he did? I think to begin, it would probably help to, to understand what is glory. Glory is this kind of a vague word we use a lot, but I, we're not sure what it means. I like the definition that Matt Papa gives in his, in his book, Look and Live, where he defines glory as the outshining of internal excellence. The outshining of internal excellence. So for example, if you saw, if you saw Simone Biles walking down the street I mean, you might just know her. You might think she's just a cute little girl who is uh, maybe a little short for her age. You know, (laughs) but that's until you watch her later at the Olympics doing things that you never imagined a human body could do. That's why we watch the Olympics. It's a two-week outshining of internal excellence that we watch in awe. In the same way, the Sistine Chapel is the outshining of Michelangelo's internal excellence. So that describes human excellence. That describes human glory. And if that's the case, then what is the outshining of God's internal excellence? Well, we know from Psalm 19 that the the heavens declare the glory of God. So when we look in awe at some of the latest images from the, from the web telescope, we can begin to appreciate the outshining of God's internal excellence. Isn't that stunning? I mean, those, those images represent light years. We can't even fathom how amazing and, and, and how big that is. And that's just a sliver of it. 
And we also know from Isaiah 6 that, that the whole earth is filled with his glory. So when we look at, look at images like this, we're beholding the outshining of God's internal excellence. It says, indeed, the whole earth is filled with things that make us stare in awe. And this includes, by the way, the great athletes like Simone Biles you see here. Isn't that awesome? Or great artists like Michelangelo, who God created both of them to do what they do. But here's the thing. We can see all of this glory now. So that can't be the glory that Jesus is talking about. Okay, pay attention now because this is where it gets good. If the endless glory seen throughout the earth and the mind-numbing expanse of the universe isn't what Jesus was willing to allow himself to be humiliated, tortured by men, and forsaken by his eternal father for us to see, if all of this is just a, a foretaste, it's just a, a teaser, well, then we better buckle up. Because as 1 Corinthians says, no eye has seen and no ear has heard nor heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Whoa. And there is one thing we know about this glory from Ephesians 2. It says, in Ephesians 2, it says, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in, in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? Coming ages. We are destined for eternal life because that is precisely how long it will take to show us everything that he has prepared for us to see. Unless you think that this is just going to be an eternity of, of daily field trips to see more wonders of the universe, notice that it says that he wants to display what? The, immeasur the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. The immeasurable riches of his grace. Now, 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 we can't begin to fully understand what that means. But think about this. We celebrate grace every week here. God's unmerited favor on us. We, we sing about how amazing it is. Saints throughout the, the generations sing about the amazing grace of God. We stand in awe and we worship. We preach about grace every single week here. And according to the text, we haven't even started to scratch the surface of its glory. All we know 
is that Jesus can't wait to begin what will take an eternity to fully reveal. God's grace is the ultimate outshining of his internal excellence. And the wonder of eternity will not be found in in reveling in God's creation as stunning as it is, but it's going to be eternally reveling in him. We will revel in not the, not the, 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 the artistry, but the artist. Good news of great joy. Are you getting there? And finally, I want to I briefly explore one more question about this great Savior born to us. And this, this may be the most important question of all. Who did he come to save? Who did he come to save? And again, fortunately, we don't have to guess or make assumptions because our, our text makes it pretty clear, gives us pretty clear answers. The first clue is in our root verse today, in verse 10, where it says, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So we know that this Savior is for who? All the people. What does that mean? Okay, well, let's first knock out the universalist notion that it means everybody. All y'all, as we say. We've already discussed the reality of hell. And the Bible's pretty clear indication that not everyone avoids going there. Just the opposite. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So it seems like a more a faithful interpretation would be all kinds of people. Or to use the Bible's own words, in Revelations 5, 9, we read, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And just to confirm, we read the same thing exactly two chapters later in Revelation 7, 9. It says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation and from all tribes and all peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This savior is for every ethnicity from every generation throughout, throughout history, from all parts of the world, men, women, young, old, rich, poor, tall, short, black, brown, white, pick your color. We just know that no one is excluded because of where they live, when they lived, or what they look like. But our text does narrow it down more at the very end of verse 14. In, our, in, in Luke 2, where it says, and suddenly there was an angel, uh, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay? With whom he is pleased. 
So here I think we have to be careful not to swerve into the ditch of, of merit salvation, thinking that, that we are the ones who have to please God. Scripture clearly says that, that we're saved by grace, not by works, lest anyone should boast. So the question then becomes, well, who is he pleased with then? I like the way John MacArthur answers this question. He says, angels are not rejoicing and glorifying God for what men have done or will do. Angels are not rejoicing that some men will merit salvation. They're glorifying God because though none can merit salvation, God is pleased to give it by his own good pleasure. There is salvation peace. Peace between man and God among those whom God has chosen to delight in. It's not men who have earned it. It's God who has given it because it's his pleasure to give it. And so the angels are praising God because he has chosen to delight in bringing salvation peace to sinners. And then lastly, I think our third and final clue to the question of, to answer the question of who did Jesus come to save is found in verse 11. Today in the city of David, a savior was born for you. Who is the Messiah, the Lord? Well, who is the angel talking to? A group of shepherds, right? And this was the most remarkable proclamation in human history, delivered in the most spectacular fashion ever seen and it was done for a handful of lowly shepherds late at night in the middle of nowhere. And I think we can, we can safely assume that this was precisely by God's design. The angels didn't accidentally show up at the wrong address. They weren't the only people available at the moment. And I'm pretty sure that God didn't just throw a dart at a map and well, that's where it landed. No, he was communicating something very intentional here about who he was coming to save. Do you notice how little we know about the shepherds? We don't know their names. We don't even, how, we don't even know how many there were. All we know is that they were shepherds out doing what shepherds do at night, keeping watch over their flock. What we do know is that shepherds were the, were the lowest of low on the socioeconomic scale. It was the most menial of jobs. It was looked down on by the, by the white-collar uppity-ups in nearby Jerusalem. And that's the point. It's the shepherd types that he came to save. We, we read earlier in Luke 4 where Jesus said, what did he do? He said he came to proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's who the Savior came to save. And to be clear, he's not just talking about the financially poor, or the literal captives, or the physically blind. Jesus began his sermon on, Mount, on, on, on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are humble. Who does the Savior save? Those who by God's grace come to realize that they are spiritually bankrupt with no way to remedy their situation on their own. 
They are the spiritual equivalent of the guy out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And so in brokenness and humility, they cry out like the tax collector in Luke 18, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, great joy can only come to those who are willing to humbly acknowledge that they are great sinners in need of a great savior. And the good news of great joy is that for you, a savior is born. So I close by once again asking, how great is your joy? How great is your joy? You see, if hell isn't that bad and heaven isn't that great, and if you're a pretty good person, then you don't have much need of a savior nor anything to spark much joy at all. You see, great joy is for those who can say, like 20th century pastor and missionary Jack Miller, Cheer up. You're a far worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. Cheer up. Because you're far more loved than you ever dared hope. Amen. Let me pray. Take a moment just to respond to God to what you have just heard in whatever way was meaningful to you. Confess the ways that maybe you have minimized the greatness of our great Savior and the salvation that he accomplished. If this is new to you, or if you're not sure if you're even a recipient of this great salvation, in just a moment when we begin to sing, I would encourage you to slip to the back and allow one of our prayer team members back there to talk to you, pray with you. If you are a follower of Jesus, but this message stirred something to you that you would like to discuss or pray about with someone, I encourage you to meet with them back there as well. Oh, Father. Thank you for the amazing news that unto us a Savior was born. Would you give us sight today to see both ourselves and you rightly in regards to this salvation? Would you still in our hearts this Christmas season great joy, not in all the things that the world around us looks to for joy, but in a clear realization of just how good the news is that unto us a Savior has been born. We pray this in your holy name, amen.